Hey, welcome to the How to Write a Novel podcast. So I've been watching these YouTube videos by this guy named Summoning Salt. And he makes these videos that uh, chronicle the progress of video game speedrun world records. Like, here's the first known footage of uh, a guy beating Super Mario Brothers in under six minutes from 2004, you know, like from a VHS tape. And then he goes through and then like this guy sped it up by doing this and this guy sped it up by doing this and it's like these like 15-20 minute deep dive in-depth looks at this like super obsessive crazy hobby. And it's so cool like I really really like watching this guy's videos. And it kind of made me realize that uh, like there's a lot of stuff about the post-internet world that I mean, I guess you can't argue that it's worse, but it's just sort of less pleasant. Like, there's something interesting, I guess, about where I was born in 1979. So it was like a split of most of my youth was pre-internet, and then in my late teens it became post-internet, and now as an adult it's fully super internetville. So I really got a good sort of sense of both worlds. And I've heard people say that this, uh, you know, you don't notice it as much when you're living through it. But that these advancements that we've made now with wireless internet and everyone has a cell phone and it's so crazy, like it is very similar to my grandmother was 102 before she died and, you know, she was around to see cars and electric lights show up, you know, and it's a similar level of change. And there are things that are just, in the social fabric in particular, just fundamentally different and that we'll never go back. And I have a certain, you know, everyone has nostalgia for their youth and when they were a kid. So it's kind of doubled up. It's like I've got the normal kid nostalgia, but I'm also nostalgic for just like a a style of society that is gone. And uh, I guess the easiest way to describe it, or I've heard it described, is that we used to have a monoculture. Just there was only so many movies to see, only so many TV channels. When my mom was a kid, the radio wasn't even on all day. There wasn't enough radio programming for there to be something on the radio all day in Canada. (laughs) You know, it's just like... So specifically when I was a kid in like the 80s, when you think back to like Pac-Man and Michael Jackson, Mr. T, you know, it was just like... E.T. Everybody knew these things, like everybody. There was no question. And there is a sort of comfort to that, this idea that like we were all listening to the same songs on the radio, we were all watching the same TV shows, and we all watched the same movies. But what I really like about now, which I don't know what you call it, I mean, what is the opposite of the monoculture? The multi-culture? <laughs> you know? the infinite culture but the thing that I really like about how things are now which is really exemplified by these hyper in-depth videos about speedruns is I love that level of super coverage that can be given to really specific topics because that could never happen back then there just wasn't any way to distribute stuff that made it viable to really dive deep on specific topics but it's become more and more common to the point that like I had this idea a couple of years ago I was like wouldn't it be cool to do a podcast 
where every episode we reviewed one minute of the movie Scott Pilgrim and just really dive deep. And then I found out that somebody already did it about Star Wars. And uh, one of my friends texted me a little while ago, like, hey, remember that idea you had? Somebody's doing that about the Lost Boys. Like, you can't even have an absurd idea that you think is half a joke without finding out that someone else already did it, you know? But that's cool. Like, that's what I like. I like the super in-depth, or that the non-fiction book I wrote is just this enormous book about one video game. I think that's so cool that we can do that. And this very podcast, just the idea that this is a daily podcast about a guy writing one book, you know? Like, that we can do that, that that is completely distributable and not even a particularly weird idea, you know? It's like that's become digestible. So I mean like nowadays like I don't know what any like songs on the radio are. I'm only aware of the I mean I guess I keep up with like superhero movies but I don't know a lot of movies just pass me by. If there is a sense of a monoculture anymore I am certainly not participating and I really don't think that there is. I think you know like younger people have more bandwidth available in their attention for what's popular, but it still goes by so fast and it's so transient or whatever. But if you find the thing that you like and you want to deep dive into it, holy shit. (laughs) I remember there's this one blog, I can't remember what it's called. A lot of my examples are video games because I'm a video game fella. But it's about the first Dark Souls game, which is a super, super fascinating game. And it's about how, like, when you see something in the distance in the game, the guy, like, examines what that in-the-distance version of a building looks like compared to what the actual building looks like when you get up close and how things load into memory and how it gives you these big sprawling vistas and how it created this seamless world when that's not actually how the game really functions. So interesting, just so awesome, I love it. It's a little windy out here today, so I'm going to go find a less windy area. There we go, in a nice wooded area away from the wind. And that just had me thinking about, the problem is I can't remember the details, so it's pointless to ramble on about it, but I saw this one YouTube video that, uh, what was the name? Hauntology, I think is what they call it. But it's this notion that the current world we're in is very much like we're surrounded by ghosts, which is a thought I had. It was neat to hear someone else express it, because this is what I always did think about this rise of the internet is how weird it was in my late teens and early 20s for my entire childhood to backwash back into my life, you know? For most people, whatever, they watched Howdy Doody cartoons and Puff the Magic Dragon and then it was gone and that was it. It was just these weird memories of being a kid. Where for me, emulators came out and I played every Sega Master System game I ever owned. There they are, I can just go play them again. And it feels much different when they are valueless, you know? Instead of playing one game for months, I played each game for one minute, you know? Just like weird. 
And all the old TV theme songs from the cartoons you used to watch as a kid, they're all there. And the commercials from when you were a kid, they're all there. And not very much new seems to be happening. Instead, it's like, hey, here's Transformers and G.I. Joe and Ninja Turtles and Star Wars, and here's all the stuff just again and 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 again. And that had been happening in a slower way, that sort of 20-year cycle where, like, the 70s and the 90s music scene was very similar, which I didn't know at the time because... As a teen, I just thought alternative and grunge was just like this wicked-ass cool new thing. But then, as I got older and I heard a lot of 70s bands, and it's like, oh, this is so obvious that all those grunge guys grew up with this stuff and that they were very much patterning themselves after that. Or the way the needle would just swing back and forth if you follow the pop charts ever since basically the Beatles straight up till the internet, it would be this shift, about a 12-year sway between rock and pop that just went back and forth eternally. And then with the internet, all of this stuff just got shaken up. It's like if you take a lava lamp and you shake it, and instead of being this cool, slow, groovy blob, it just turns into a bunch of little pellets that never go back together. And it's not a lava lamp anymore, and it's not very cool, it's just particles. So yeah, I thought that hauntology concept was really interesting for someone to put a name to it because I had always felt like that, like, where's all the new shit? And why won't the old shit go away? <laughs> you know? And it is, it's like we're surrounded, just surrounded by ghosts of the past. But at the same time, that seems like a weirdly downbeat way of looking at things that I didn't necessarily vibe with that too much. And then I looked up the guy who coined the term hauntology, Mark something. Anyway, he fucking killed himself. <laughs> he wrote a bunch of books about it and killed himself. Which just seemed interesting because so much of life is perspective. And it's like, it's one thing to recognize these things and to notice these things. To be like, oh yeah, this does seem to be how it is. But you don't have to be down about it, <laughs> you know? Not to oversimplify a man's suicide. I just thought that was interesting that just researching the guy a little, I'm like, this seems like an odd take. This seems like a strangely downbeat take on what is essentially a neutral phenomenon. And uh, so then it's like, oh, he killed himself. Hmm. Hmm. Not a neutral phenomenon. <laughs> I do wonder sometimes. I mean, there's obviously the chemical imbalance thing. It's pretty easy to kind of imagine some degree of that situation of like how uh, how it really is uh, more and more obvious to me that physically and emotionally human beings are not super resilient if uh, it's just you know small small changes can really affect things like uh, I'm brought up a few times just as a physical example this pain in my dumb shoulder I figured out that it wasn't caused by this, but it was made worse just because I was having a... I have fallen arches, so I just got a little... a little thing to put in the heel of my shoe so that the sole of my foot wouldn't hurt. But that threw off the balance of my body by, you know, whatever, like a fucking eighth of an inch. And then that throws off the alignment of your hips and then that throws off your shoulders. It's fucking crazy that just this tiny little thing over time 
over the course of, you know, seven or eight months just was wrecking my shoulder. (laughs) How is a tiny little thing in my shoe wrecking my shoulder? It's so fucked up. It's such little things that just are ruinous. So if you do have some kind of chemical imbalance and you just wake up every day feeling shitty and it just never seems to pass, it's definitely understandable that after a while you're just like, I just am not going to do this anymore. Why would I keep doing this? And obviously everything is a matter of degrees, you know, everyone's situation is different. I do wonder sometimes, because so much mentally does have to do with mindset and with perspective, and as I get older I find that like, I'm not necessarily more mentally strong. It's more that I have discarded my desire for things, you know? It's like, I just don't want X, Y, or Z anymore. They don't seem valuable. They don't seem like there's something worth struggling toward. So I'm no longer pained by not having them, you know? Which has the net effect of making you feel more strong and more effective in the world. It's a weird thing. And I do wonder sometimes like about when people are depressed, I wonder sometimes how much of it might be, if not caused, then worsened by just holding on to the old ideals, holding on to the idea of society that you grew up with and the idea of how your life should be or how things should have ended up and just not willing to let them go. I mean, I've let go of so many things that at this point, this whole society is like, if it all went away, I'd be like, good enough, man. Let's fall out it up. Let's Mad Max it up. Because what is all of this? (laughs) It's just not worth holding on to if it's just going to crush you down and make you miserable. And yeah, I don't know, I don't have any specific evidence or examples or uh, anything. It's just a general wondering that I have of like, if people could recalibrate their expectations for what their life should be, would they feel better? I know I do. And you just boil it way, 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 way down. And it's like, well, here I am walking through the woods. What else is there? (laughs) This is it, man. Here we are. I made it. It's all done. But whatever, that's probably highly insensitive and insulting to someone. I thought that was construction noise, but it's actually someone wiling out, wiling out on the drums. <laughs> now it doesn't really get much better than that. This guy's got a mountain view house. He's fucking animaling out on the drums. Nice work. Nice work, Sonny. Uh, so listen, speaking of expectation. So the last like three days, 
I really, really got very little work done on the book, which isn't really even that unusual. Like I was describing earlier, the way I kind of view it is like a, like a pickaxe, taking a pickaxe to a big rock wall. And some days you just get a little ting, a little bing, and that's it. There's been plenty of times since I started working on this book that that's been the case. I guess I only felt weird about it because I've started this podcast. Like, I'm getting that dumb thought of like, I should have more to report on the podcast, even though nobody minds, no one cares. You know, I'm just doing this because it's like a fun thing. And that the time that I record and edit the podcast really doesn't overlap at all with the time I would spend writing the books. This isn't, doesn't slow me down at all doesn't really affect the writing. But it's just so easy, I guess, to fall into that little pit of that little, like, self-repudiation of just feeling a little bit guilty of, like, why should, why don't I do my work? Why don't I do more work? This fucking North American thing, it's so in my head of just, like, you're supposed to work. It's shameful for you not to be doing work. Be guilty about not doing work. And then on uh, the third day, because I'm still just, uh, taking these notes that I found to fix up the end of the chapter I was working on. And on the third day, oh, it's so great, where I was just on uh, the SkyTrain, which is like the subway system in Vancouver. Pulled out my little phone, because that's pretty much where I do all my writing, is just on a, an Android phone with a keyboard. And wrote just some awesome shit. Let me just describe it briefly. Basically, the chapter is just about this this war orphan alien girl who's stranded on uh, an alien starship because her planet blew up. <laughs> and uh, she's just running. And I started writing about her remembering other times that she ran, things she did as a kid. And then it got into, it's this concept I haven't really dealt with much in the book yet, but it's going to be a big source of contention between the two main characters. It's this... Uh, adulthood ritual that they did on her planet because her people are super super badass that's really harsh they basically starve you for like three days and then drop you in the equivalent of like the Australian outback you know there's just nothing there except on a sort of Mars style lava flow hell planet <laughs> like real bad like you're not actually intended to survive this like that's the point of the ritual is that it's not ornamental in any way it's set up so that if you do the math you're like well okay that person's dead <laughs> like there's no way they're making it out of that and a lot of people don't but a lot of people do and those people are now officially badass forever you know like what can you not overcome after you've overcome that and that's going to be a big argument between the two main characters because the uh the other dude, you know, he's from a species that is like just an endless retirement home, you know, it's like make everyone live forever, make everything easy. So it just seems insanely barbaric and murderous to him and that they do this to, you know, like young teens or whatever, like is extra insane. Like you can't fucking do that. You're just, you're killing people. And there's a similar ritual as you get older that's much softer but that's also how they clear out the old people it's like if you can't make it through this uh yearly excursion then that's because it's time for you to go 
and all this stuff is terrifying to him. Whereas to her, she's like, yeah, well, of course you would say that because you didn't do it and you couldn't do it, you little bitch. <laughs> you know? How fucking dare you? Criticize us and pull rank, you little jelly. You soft little fuck. So I wrote this thing where she's running and she's remembering that time of going through that adulthood ritual and running for her life and being absolutely sure she was dead, just sure she was gonna die. But she didn't die, she lived, she made it. And then her, her subconscious while she's running just kind of starts tying together the two situations of like, even though her adulthood ritual was just about her, and there would be really no consequences if she didn't make it, except that she wouldn't make it. Everyone else would have been fine. And it really was her own ingenuity and her own power that got her through that. Whereas this thing with her fucking planet exploding, there was nothing she could do about that. She just was lucky enough not to be on the planet's surface at the time. So the situations don't line up in that sense. But they do line up in the sense that that both times she was staring death in the face and didn't die. And the first time it's cause, you know, she stared back. She stared death down until death turned away. Where the second time she was just lucky that death didn't see her basically. But she starts to have this weird little notion that even though she survived through this thing that's just so enormous, this cataclysm that's so big, it can't even be described or understood or parsed or digested. It's just beyond sense, it's so big and so crazy. But she starts to have this little feeling in the back of her mind that in a way she's been here before. You know, she's been face down with the end and then still been here and still kept going. And I was just so fucking pleased when I wrote that. I'm like, fuck yes, oh man, that is so good. That is so good. And if I had buckled down three days ago, or two days ago, would I have written that? Maybe the reason I was dragging my feet and maybe the reason I was going so slow is because somewhere in the back of my mind I knew I wasn't where I needed to get to. The idea that I needed wasn't there yet. And then on day three when I had it, I'm like, oh, thank fucking God I didn't bear down on this earlier and written something less resonant and less important to this story, you know? Thank God for going slow, man. Slowness is the best, <laughs> you know? To write the book I wanna write, it has to be slow. And in the grand scheme of things, what is the difference between one day and three days? Who cares? It makes no difference, you know? And that could be the difference between a great book and a forgettable book. Because moments like this aren't just moments, like they interconnect. They relate to everything. They inform the rest of the work. So it really kind of confirmed for me or just like reminded me that not only is going slow okay, Going slow is what I want to do. Going slow is how I want this to be, to get the end result that I want. And if I do want to get more work done or, you know, have that feeling that I'm getting more accomplished each day, that's a valid feeling too. 
but I can do that by working on other things. Get my little bit done on the principal story. Make sure that it's the right thing and that it's good and that it's the next step that it should be. And then go write something else. Go work on something else. This story, though, this main one, it's going to be slow and it should be slow and it will be slow. I vow it. <laughs> slow is better. It is so much better. And if I start uh, getting caught up and having those days where it seems like not much is getting done, that's okay. As long as I'm there, as long as I'm putting in the, the effort, even if nothing comes out, something will come out. And I just got to remind myself that and not get neurotic about it. Just slow and steady. Because then also the ultimate, the real end goal, the real point of all this is just to actually get to the end. Because getting work done on a grand scale is not my problem. I get tons of shit done. And I have tons of stuff that is done. But not done done. Not completed, you know? And I could drift around from this project to that project and... That's what I've always done, and I have a lot of work to show for it. Tons. Lots of stuff to fall back on, lots of things to work on in the future. But as for stuff that's finished, not that much. So I really have to stay focused on this one story. This is the main one. Everything else comes after this. Work on this first, then do whatever else. And if going hyper slow is what's needed to keep me from getting bucked off to keep me from flying off of this horse that's fine and additionally the results seem to be better anyway so for song of the day the uh, song that just jumped into my mind is this prodigy song called wall of death <laughs> and uh, it's gonna be one of these things like I'm looking forward to this conversation when it finally happens in this book where they're debating this uh, barbaric ritual so the dude from the softer culture will be like like what if someone is crippled what if someone is born with a birth defect like what is gonna happen they're just gonna die and she's gonna be like yeah they are they're gonna die but <laughs> but what if they don't like every once in a blue fucking moon you know every very occasionally someone who's like crippled say makes it that's all you got to do to survive this ritual you just got to make it back you just got to make it back to civilization and you've done it and you're considered a full citizen and an adult and a full part of society and the point she's going to make is that if that guy if we just coddled the guy who was born missing an arm we just coddled him for his whole life and he's just like oh it's okay you're part of society but they're from this this very warlike harsh brutal society he's never gonna feel like he really does belong he's always gonna feel like it's just charity from the from everyone else he's gonna feel like a burden where when he comes back from this adulthood ritual and he made it then he's the same as everyone else forever he is officially part of the clan and that is never going to be taken away and can never be denied and he's not a guy with one arm anymore. He's just one of them. And that's going to be her argument is like, yeah, a lot of people don't make it. A lot of people do die. If this wasn't so ingrained in our culture, maybe we wouldn't do it. It's pretty fucking crazy. 
it has to be something that you just grow up with and that you just accept and that you just do. But then when you do it, the gift that it gives you is, will you shut the fuck up? God damn it. <laughs> the gift that it gives you is just completely priceless, you know? There's nothing even comparable to that, to just... I don't know, I think it's just an interesting idea, because Lord knows our society has nothing like that. Not even remotely. We have no adulthood rituals, and hence no one grows up, and here we are. <laughs> here we fucking are. So here's the prodigy with Wall of Death. I'll see you tomorrow. Hello, I'm Oliver and this is Deep Cuts. The philosopher Jacques Derrida coined the term hauntology in the 1990s and with this term he was referring to a dislocation in temporality. Something from the past returns to the present but in a very spectre-like way. It sort of haunts the present. The reason it's like a haunting is because things cannot technically come back from the dead, right, if you look at it in that way. And if they do return, it's in a way that breaks temporality. You know, if it can come back, then how can it solely belong to the past? It's like anything that returns from a bygone age. It can never exist in exactly the same way because our view of it is being informed by the fact that it belonged in the past originally. If you look at fashion trends, for example, so 80s fashion comes back in style now, you know, it sort of doesn't occupy a temporal space. It, it's fractured in some way because yes, it came from the past, but now we're experiencing it in the present, but our views are informed by the past, but how can it only belong to the past? if it's existing in the present. Now, I know that that's a bit confusing, but hopefully I've explained myself okay with that one. Uh, Mark Fisher, a brilliant cultural theorist whose work I absolutely recommend checking out. In fact, his book, Ghosts of My Life, um, Writings on Depression, Hauntology and Lost Futures is a lot of what I based this, this video on today. And he's, a, he's great, he's got a lot of stuff out, so you should really check some of his work out. But he took Derrida's concept of hauntology and specifically applied that within the confines of art. His approach to hauntology is that we are haunted by a future that never came to pass, a future that we were promised and we were working towards, but has been eliminated by things like late-stage capitalism and postmodernism, and he calls that lost futures. Not only has the future not arrived, it no longer seems possible. Far into the world.